We come now to our Bible reading, and it's a part of the letter that St. Paul wrote to the folk down in the town of Ephesus. And like much of Paul's writings, it's a little bit involved, convoluted, complicated, whatever you might like to call it. But we're reading from the chapter 3 of that letter. And Paul starts off with this. For this reason, I, Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And he breaks off there, and he comes back with this thought. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, uh, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be unable to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it is now being revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden by God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And I say thanks God for that. Does your mind ever wonder when you're praying? You might be comforted to know that the same thing happened to St Paul. He's just in the process of writing this letter to the Ephesians. He's just about to say, for this reason, I I kneel before the Father. And he's just about to carry on praying when this thought occurs to him that that kind of leads him off on this lengthy digression that that Ian read to us. And in this particular case, when he gets round eventually to saying what, what the thought was... It's a sentence that might strike us as being quite ordinary. The key to the passage is this. Through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise. That was the thought that impinged itself so vividly on his consciousness that he stopped praying and had to get this idea down then and there. Well, it's hardly a sentence to set the world on fire, you might think. Easy to read the words for us without them ever really connecting with us, without us feeling the significant impact that Paul clearly felt. But these words were the driving force behind everything that Paul did. And we're not sensitive to their impact because we don't live in a world where the difference between Jew and non-Jew, between Jew and Gentile, means very much. It's hard to get excited about what Paul says here. But if any of you watched uh, the the BBC programmes in the footsteps of St Paul over the Christmas period, 
and they were impressed by the fact that he spent decades traversing the Mediterranean to preach the gospel and make Jesus known. This was his motivation for doing that. And it was a fundamentally radical thing for Paul to say. Because before his encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road, he had been a Pharisee. A member of the one of the most zealous and devoted religious parties of his day. And holiness was a big thing if you were a Pharisee. It was all about separation and exclusion. Keeping what was not holy away as much as possible. Israel kept herself pure and expressed her devotion to the Lord by having nothing to do with sinful Gentiles who didn't keep God's law and so were unclean. The most holy place in the world was the city of Jerusalem. And the most holy place in Jerusalem was the temple. And the most holy place in the temple was the holy of holies. And if God was to be found anywhere in in earth, it was there in that inner sanctuary where in times past the Ark of the Covenant had been. And that was, was the place where God's presence was to be expressed. And the high priest was allowed access just once a year to that most holy place on the Day of Atonement. And you Gentiles, they didn't get anywhere near. They were given access to the, the outer courts of the temple, which was basically a marketplace, but they were separated from the Holy of Holies by a whole series of barriers which they were forbidden to cross on pain of death. Beyond the court of the Gentiles was the court where only Israelites were allowed. And beyond that was the court where only Israelite men were allowed. And beyond that was the court where only the priests were allowed. And beyond that was the place where only the priests went in to burn incense. And beyond that was the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go in there with sacrificial blood once a year. God was holy. And the closer to God you got, the holier you had to be. And as a Pharisee, one of Paul's preoccupations had been extending levels of holiness out from the temple. So their vision was, if all Israel kept the law to the same degree of purity as the priests in the temple, then Messiah would come and all their problems would be sorted. So they were big on making sure that people were really keen on cleanliness, observing all the minor details of the law and living as if they were priests. That was their vision, that was their goal. And all that changed when Saul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, appearing to him in heavenly glory, making himself known as the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who had been crucified and obviously had risen again because Saul had met him now and had come without Israel keeping all the standards of the law to the level required by priests in the Holy Temple. And and Saul's world turned on its head. And you see something of that working out in practice here in this letter to the Ephesians, where where Paul is portrayed as, as directly opposite of how he'd been as a Pharisee. Suddenly, instead of saying, you have got to keep your distance from a holy God because you are sinful Gentiles and you must have nothing to do with him, suddenly everybody is welcome. Anybody and everybody can come in. doesn't matter if you're Jewish, doesn't matter if you're Gentile, doesn't matter if you're a woman, doesn't matter what you've done. You have access to the presence of God. Through faith in Christ, anyone and everyone is free to come to God with freedom and with confidence. 
The barriers are saying, keep out, don't come near, have been replaced with welcome signs. And everybody is included without restriction. And the man who had once been so keen to keep Israel holy, separated from the polluted nations that surrounded her, was now engaged in a one-man mission to tell everyone that would listen that because of Jesus, they were now honorary members of God's people. All God's promises were valid for them. They were welcomed, they were included, they were accepted alongside the people of Israel. They were one body with the people of Israel. Everything that had applied to God's nation, Israel, now applied to them. It was like saying that tickets to the Olympics were no longer just for the lucky few winners. Anyone and everyone was welcome there and there was space enough for a grandstand view for all comers. Through the Gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and share us together in the promise. Instead of the church being a holy huddle of the select elect, it becomes a visible demonstration of what Paul describes as the manifold wisdom of God. Manifold is one of those slightly religious terms you don't use in everyday language unless you're stripping down the exhaust system on a car. It refers to all the pipes that are collected to funnel out the exhaust gases through a single pipe. But the word means multifaceted, diverse, much varied, something which exists in a multitude of different forms. So it's an unusual word to describe wisdom, yet it's an appropriate word to describe how the church displays that wisdom. Because the the point Paul wants to make, and his vision is, that the more varied and diverse the makeup of the church is, the more that displays the multicoloured wisdom of God. The more nationalities, the wider the age spread, the greater the diversity of cultural background, the number of different jobs that people do, when all of that comes together in glorious technicolour mix in the single united body of Christ, the more God rubs his hands together with glee and thinks, this is fantastic. We're not that diverse here in Brian Road. Mainly British, mainly white, mainly middle class, mainly middle-aged and older. But there's enough diversity here for God to say, this is good. This is what I had in mind. But you might stop and think, well... (laughs) How come there is such a change between the Old Testament and the New Testament then? How come God changes so much overnight? How come the Old Testament is all about holiness being separation and purity and exclusion and then in the New Testament everybody is welcome? Has God suddenly changed his mind or something? Well, no. In the Old Testament, all of those barriers are in place to keep a holy God separate from sinful humanity. Because where holiness comes into contact with sinfulness, the results are devastatingly destructive. And that caused problems because it was in God's heart to be present among his people in his holiness. If God had stayed separate in heaven and left us all down here to get on with it without him, there wouldn't have been the problem of the conflict between God's holiness and human sinfulness. But as soon as God says, I want to be with my people, as soon as I want, says, he says, I want to be in the midst of the people of Israel whom I've called to belong to me, that causes issues. Because there, in the tabernacle, in, in, the, in the Ark of the Covenant, God is present in his holiness, and he's surrounded by sinful people. So all the safeguards have to be put in place to ensure that God can be present as a holy God 
in the midst of a people who are sinful. But it still felt, as the Israelites carried the Ark of the Covenant around with them, the box that symbolised the presence of God in their midst, it felt as if they were carrying around a container of extremely unstable nitroglycerin because they had a holy God in their midst and they were a sinful people. What changes in the New Testament? Jesus changes everything. Because we were thinking earlier, Jesus deals with the problem of sin once and for all by his death on the cross. And what is sinful is made holy through Jesus taking our sin upon himself when he died. And in the death and destruction of the cross, you see the deadly consequences of human sin coming into contact with divine holiness. And you see that working out in human people crucifying the Holy Son of God and God absorbing into himself the destructive effects of sin coming into contact with holiness. Absorbing into himself the sin that lies at the root of that incompatibility with God. So that having taken our sin into himself, his holiness might be extended to us all through his gift of his spirit. So rather than trying to keep divine holiness and human sin at arm's length, God embraces human sinfulness in the person of his Son, satisfying the catastrophic consequences of that in himself, and having done so, making us holy by giving us his Spirit and welcoming us all, without exclusion, distinction or reserve, into his presence. At the cross of Calvary, Christ became sin so that we might become holy. And the whole focus of religion changes from trying to keep sinful people separate from a holy God in their midst to welcoming sinful people into the presence of a holy God because Jesus, by his death on the cross, has neutralised our sin. That means you, through Jesus, have the freedom to approach God with confidence. You don't need to be guilty or ashamed or to feel unworthy or afraid that God will reject you because of what you said or done or how you feel about yourself. Jesus died on the cross to include everybody and that includes you. And faith is about saying, Lord Jesus, I know you died to take away sin. Take mine away. Make me holy. Make me a member of your people. May I know that I am welcome in the presence of God. I am accepted, I am forgiven, I am fathered by the true and living God. There is no guilt or fear as I draw near to the Saviour and Creator of the world. That is what Jesus makes possible when we put our faith in him. You might feel that you're an unlikely candidate to be included in God's people. But as far as God is concerned, your presence in the midst of his people is one more pleasing shade in the glorious spectrum of colour that is his church. It is the more and the more diverse, the merrier, as far as he is concerned. And whatever it is that might lie in the past that gives you those feelings of guilt or shame or unworthiness, Jesus has dealt with that comprehensively for good and all by dying on the cross. And there is no attempt on his part to minimise, mitigate or excuse whatever has happened. But your sin, whatever that might have been in its awfulness, Jesus died for it on the cross so that there are now no more barriers between you and God. The door is open. God welcomes you with a smile saying, it's good to see you. In theory, and I hope in practice, 
the welcome you received when you arrived here and the welcome that will be extended to you after the service here in the sanctuary in coffee will be a personal human expression of God's welcome and acceptance of you as an individual. You may be a complete stranger to us here and we may welcome you shaking your hand knowing nothing of your murky past. But the welcome we give represents the welcome God gives and he knows everything and he still welcomes us. It's God's grace that welcomes, accepts and forgives and we avail ourselves of that grace by simply believing that Jesus makes it available to us. Jesus took your sin. You are forgiven, welcomed and accepted in the presence of God as one of his beloved children. You've done nothing to deserve this and that really doesn't matter because it's all about God's grace. That's the good news that Paul devoted himself to proclaiming. That's the good news that he spent decades wandering around the Mediterranean telling everyone who would listen. That's the good news that we celebrate here and which lies at the core of our identity as God's people in Brighton Road. So Jesus redefines holiness. It's no longer about keeping sinful out, keeping sinful people out from the presence of a holy God. It's about welcoming them in. And as people who are welcomed and accepted by the grace of God, we respond to that by living our lives in devotion to him. I want to walk with Jesus Christ all the days I live of my life on earth. Thank you, Marian, for sharing that. And yes, that has an impact on how we live because God has made us holy people. And it's right that we start to live a holy lifestyle. But identity comes first and the way of living flows out of that knowledge that we belong to God. Single-hearted devotion to God and open acceptance of everybody else. That's what God looks for in Brighton Road in 2013. And it all boils down, as Jesus said, to two commandments. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got. Love your neighbour as yourself. That's holiness in Christ. And its foundation is grace. The grace that was shown when Jesus was made sin for us, so that we, all of us, with no exceptions or exclusions, might wholly belong to him.